Thank you, Rachel. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. We need to take up a love offering for Rachel so she can buy herself a full-size guitar. (laughs) She's had that one since she was just two. I'm teasing. But do say goodbye to Rachel. She'll be leaving um, early next week. And uh, she'll be moving to Florida to to, uh, start. uh, She's been offered a job in Tampa, Florida. And uh, so, of course, she's grown up here. We'll miss her and uh, appreciate the uh, respect you've given to the Word of God and the love you've given to us as a church throughout your life so far. She's got a good church lined up there in Florida. And uh, so that thrills my heart as your pastor uh, for another week. And uh, we'll miss you. So thank you for your ministry to us in music and for loving us. We love you. And uh, if you ever get right with the Lord and move back up here, we'll be happy. But uh, anyhow, uh, there's a boy down there. I used to like him. I thought he was a nice guy. But then he went and took her away. John chapter 8 is where we're at. You know, after God created man in the Garden of Eden, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And that's still true today. Uh, We need companionship. I think God created us that way. Man needs a friend. I think even the world, secular thinking even understands that. Even the world values the virtue of friendship. Um, a writer by the name of Keepin wrote this, quote, A friend is a person who does his knocking before he enters rather than after he leaves. I'll read that again. That's funny. <laughs> a friend does his, does his knocking before he enters uh, and not after he leaves. That's, that's supposed to be funny. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good definition. Someone once said this, I'm the kind of friend you can depend on. I'm always around when I need you. (laughs) Somebody else said, if you really want to know who your friends are, make a big mistake. This is just, these are not scripture verses, obviously. Another writer said, I went out to find a friend but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend and friends were everywhere. Someone else wrote, A friend is one to whom one may pour out all the contents of his heart, chaff and grain together, knowing that the gentlest of hands will take it and sift it and keep what's worth keeping with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. So even our world, to some degree, recognizes the importance of friendship. In 1910, J. Wilbur Chapman wrote these words, Jesus, what a friend. Sinners. We don't, I don't know that we often think of God as a friend for sinners. God is holy. God is righteous. He's just. How can God be a friend for sinners? Sinners. People who hate Him. People who reject Him. People who fail Him. People who fall, rebel against Him. But he wrote, nonetheless, those words, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. 
Jesus, lover of my soul. The title of that wonderful hymn is Our Great Savior, Jesus is a friend for sinners. And that really quite, really is quite an astounding thought, I think, that, that God, holy God, would be a friend for sinners. And it's the theme of the message this morning. I think Jesus, I think his love for sinners is profoundly illustrated in this text. Look at John chapter 8, and I'll begin reading in verse number 1. Verse number 1. And, and do not miss what I've said so far about him being a friend for sinners, and you see it in this passage. It says in verse 1, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. Of course, that's in Jerusalem. The temple is no longer there. The temple mount is there today, but not the temple. Jesus came into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. So you have him here in the temple There's a lot of people around him. He's teaching, verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, so they dragged this woman in, making a show of her. They're humiliating her in front of Jesus, in front of all of the people. They said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, or testing him, that they might have to accuse him. They were trying to make Jesus look bad, but Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, they were continuing to badger him, he's not answering them, he's kneeled on the ground, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him him first cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down. He would have squatted down on the ground and rode on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. I think the older we get in life, the the better we understand what sinners we are. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, and that, by the way, was not a condescending term. That would have been a, even a respectful term in those days. The men who brought her, dragged her in, were not respectful. Jesus was. He says, Woman, he said unto her, Woman, Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Notice what she calls him. Lord, curios, supreme authority. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word and ponder the incredible fact that you are a friend of sinners. And Father, we thank you for befriending us when... We were not your friend for loving us when we did not love you. Father, I pray that this morning our hearts would rejoice in your love for us and that we would be moved to love you more and to go from this place with no intention to sin, but instead to live for you. Thank you for saving us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
some years ago, an English publication offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. They received several entries, and I'll read a few of them. One entry reads, a friend is one who multiplies joy and divides grief. Another one, a friend is one who understands my silence. Another, a friend is a volume of sympathy bound in flesh. Another one writes, I love you not only for what you are, but for what I am when I'm with you. I love you not only for what you have of yourself, but for what you make of me. I love you not by closing your ears to the discords in me, but for adding to the music in me by your wonderful, by your worshipful listening. You have done it without a touch and without a word and without a sign. You have done it by just being yourself. These are all lovely thoughts. And again, even the world picks up on friendship and its importance. And they're lovely thoughts, and there are many, many more. Here's the one that won the prize. Quote, a friend is one who comes in when everybody else has gone out. I thought that was good. You know, the Hebrews in the Old Testament understood the importance of friendship. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, there are three Hebrew words that describe friendship. Rhea has the idea of an associate or somebody you keep company with. It's kind of an acquaintance. Aluth means to be gentle with, to be familiar with. And then Ahav means to be intimate or to, have a, to, be, a, to be a close companion. So Rhea, an associate, somebody you keep company with, the best English word uh, for that would be an acquaintance, somebody you know fairly well. In fact, the word is found in Proverbs 18 in verse 24 where it says, A man that hath friends, or a man that hath rhea, must show himself friendly. In other words, if you're open to folks, if you're approachable to folks, you're going to make friends on some sort of a superficial level. Um, you know, you're going to have acquaintances, folks you know fairly well, folks you feel comfortable with, folks you keep company with, folks you work alongside with, maybe a particular neighbor, you have a warmth, you have a feeling of warmth toward them and they toward you. Studies tell us that people will probably have about 200 acquaintances in their lives, friends like this, at any given time. About 200, sometimes less, sometimes more, right? Depending on your, your friendliness, but uh, there are people like that. I think you have people like that. Reyes. Then aluth was another, the second word I read to you. It means to be gentle with, to be familiar with. And this takes friendship a step further. We could call these people close friends, people you talk with. Perhaps you talk with them about very significant issues, hard things even in your life. People you might share vacation with. You might... Go on a small, short vacation, a weekend. It might, you might have some time needed to recover from that, but still, they're your friend. You might even study the Word of God with these people. You, you can miss these friends for a year or two, and when you see them again, you just pick right up where you left off. This summer, I had the privilege of preaching on a Sunday at a church for their 25th anniversary that I had preached at and held meetings at as an evangelist on several occasions, and and we got back, and, and hugs were given. We even got kissed a couple of times. Um, we, we hugged them. We, we picked right up where we left off. There was just this, there's just this bond. And uh, we don't know them well. We don't talk much. 
I got scolded for not sending a Christmas card to one couple, you know. She actually brought the ones we used to send and said, I haven't gotten any of these in the past bunches of years. But uh, we just picked up right where we left off. It's this word aloof. And uh, you might have about 25 of these kind of friends at any given point in life. And then the third Hebrew word was ahav. It means to be intimate or to be a close companion. You might only have two or three of these kind of friends in your whole life. Maybe just one. In Proverbs 18, verse 24, where he said, A man that hath rea, an associate, uh, people he can keep company with, must show himself friendly. The same verse goes on to say, There is a, an ahav, a, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. This is an intimate friend, a close friend. You just you think alike. This is the kind of close friendship that's expressed in 1 Samuel chapter 18 where it says the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In Proverbs 27, in verse number 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a ahav, a friend, this kind of a friend. An ahav friend not only loves you with an intimacy, but also tells you the truth even when it hurts and even when you don't want to hear it. This kind of a friend would even give his life for you. You would give your life for them. And if you have even one of these friends in your life, you're a very, very fortunate person. William Gladstone of Great Britain, it was said of him that he had a a great love for people in general, and he had such a deep friendship with with the princess in those days that when her daughter died, her child died, he leaned into the casket and tenderly kissed the sweet face of that dead daughter of the princess, even though he knew that that child had died of a deadly infectious disease. Friendship is like that. Friendship uh, like this is a relationship of love that is inseparable. It's uh, a friendship of great affection. It is a relationship of honesty and the ultimate self-sacrifice. And I submit to you this morning that the greatest friend that any of us have ever had is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is more intimate with us. He knows us better than anybody else. And he still never leaves us. Jesus will speak the truth to us by his spirit, never leaving us. He will speak the truth to us, though it may cut us to the core. But when the surgery is done, we will be be the better for it. And Jesus Christ gave his life for us. J. Wilbur Chapman was right. In 1910, when he learned that truth, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. That lovely hymn really sums it up. Now, our text is John chapter 8. I'm only going to preach on it for about 17 minutes. But we're not there yet. And to better understand this, these 11 verses that I've read to you, and it's a pretty familiar, it's not unfamiliar to us, so... We could read it two more times, and you would have a really good understanding of it. But I think to better emphasize what a friend Jesus is to sinners, I want to go back, and I'm going to look at a couple of passages briefly, and we're going to work through a couple of the Gospels. So take your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter 4. Would you do that with me, please? Luke chapter 4. We're not going to stay long in any one of these, 
But I want you to understand, and I want us to understand and better comprehend who we are as sinners and why Jesus came and the kind of friend that he is to us. You're in Luke chapter 4. Look at with me, if you would, in verse number 16. <clears throat> Luke chapter 4 and verse number 16. <clears throat> it says in verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, speaking about Jesus. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. Notice to whom? To the poor. And he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Talking about Jesus. To preach deliverance to the captives, to those who are in captivity. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. And so you see, and I'm emphasizing to you, who Jesus came for. Who did he come for? He came to the poor, the destitute, spiritually destitute. He came to the brokenhearted. He came for the captives, those who were caught in a snare and unable to free themselves from the snare. Those He came for the blind, those who were spiritually blind. He came to the bruised, those who had been beaten the hurting, the friendless, the lonely. And this is stated again and again in the New Testament. Look over, it, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 in verse number 10. Matthew 9 in verse 10. It says in verse 10, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, Many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And again, I remind you, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, these religious men who knew so much of the Old Testament, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master, your teacher, with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician but they that are sick. And go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous. I'm not come to call those who don't think that they're ill. I'm not not come to call those whose hearts are not broken, who think they're righteous and they're good enough, but sinners, he says, to repentance. That's why he came. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. You know, the... Pharisees were so self-righteous, and Jesus basically was saying, I can't help people who don't know they're sinners. Jesus met with sinners because they were the only ones who knew they needed a friend. Here in Matthew, look at chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, look at verse 28. Matthew 11, verse 28. Familiar passage of Scripture. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
What is the biggest burden that any man carries? And there are, some, there are many in this room who have burdens, and I'm aware of many. But many of us in this room, most of us in this room are born again. We have eternal life. What is the biggest burden that man carries? The biggest burden man carries is sin. A crushing load of sin that cannot be removed by anything that we do. No amount of good works, no amount of giving, no amount of effort can take away that burden of sin. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to remove that sin. And the biggest burden that any man carries is sin. And and so Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 11, if you've had it with your sin, if you've had it with trying to live up, to measure up to the law of God on your own, if you're weary If you're tired, if you're exhausted, come to me and take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke, in comparison to the law, being teamed up with the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course he does the the work, he is the one who does it, but my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, you'll Find rest for your souls, you see. So Jesus came to the people who knew they couldn't carry the load anymore. He came and he died for the sins of the whole world. He called all to come unto him that they might be saved. But we find here in the Gospels that Jesus is ministering to those people who know that they're sick. And I think it's illustrated wonderfully throughout the Gospels. Who are the people who are coming to Jesus? They're the ones who are lame. They're the ones who can't see. They're calling out for him. They're the ones who are deaf or the ones who are dumb. They're the ones who are possessed. Those are the ones that he helps. They're the people who can't carry the load. They're the people who are hurting. You know, he really couldn't do anything with the Pharisees and scribes because they didn't think that they were sinners. They didn't think that they had any need. So self-sufficient, so arrogant. So revolting, isn't it? Isn't it revolting to you when you think about the Pharisees? It's sad. It's terribly sad, but it's revolting. Are you ever find yourself disgusted when you read about them? And they hate him, and they're accusing him, and they're trying to ensnare him and trap him. They're trying to deceive him. They're accusing him. And he speaks the truth to them, as we've read, because he wants them to be saved too. And yet they want nothing to do with them. Why? Because they're so self-sufficient and so arrogant and proud. And it's so revolting. And yet, we see it in our own lives from time to time. You're in Matthew. Look over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and look at verse 1. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. And in verse 2, I think we find the best thing that the Pharisees and scribes ever said about Jesus. It says, then, in verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans, tax collectors, and sinners, for to hear him. They're the ones who want to hear him teach. Why? Because they know that they're sinners. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and scribes, those who knew the law so well, murmured, 
They're disgusted saying, this is what they say about him. This is the greatest compliment they ever paid Jesus. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And they're disgusted. But you know, I I read that this week. This man receiveth sinners. I kind of sat back in my chair and I smiled. I had to wipe away some tears. Jesus, this man received me. He would receive me. God became a man so he could receive me. This man received us. You know, this morning as we partake of the elements in maybe 20 minutes or so, you take of that bread and you take of that juice that symbolizes his body broken for you and for me, and that juice symbolizing his, his blood that was shed for, for you and for me. Remember this, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, what a lover of my soul. He loved the unlovable. He sought them out. And they, in humility, broken and hurting, destroyed, they came to him and they responded to him and they listened to him. And the Pharisees, the self-righteous religious group of that day, they walked by in scorn and they murmured at him and they said, look at this man, this man eats with sinners. He receiveth sinners. Yes, he does. And I'm so thankful he did. He receiveth sinners. And, and, and then it goes on and he, he, he speaks three parables in chapter 15 of Luke. And in verse number three, he spake this parable saying unto them, What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? The ninety-nine are a reference to those who have received the truth of the gospel. He's talking about those who don't have need of him. To go out after the one who's broken, who's, who's lost, who needs who knows it needs help. In verse number 7 of that same passage, it says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over the one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons, the people who think they're right, which need no repentance. They don't think they need to repent at all. Their lives are just fine. They're perfect in their own eyes. They've got life figured out, and they don't need Religion, they don't need God. Or maybe they would say, maybe religion is included in their box and they've got it all figured out, but they, they're, they're not worshiping the one true God. They don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They, don't, they would say they don't need forgiveness. He goes on in verse number 8 of that same chapter. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And he's illustrating why is, why is he receiving sinners? Why is he sitting with these? Why is he teaching these sinners? He's likening himself to this woman who's lost one, one piece, one coin. She leaves off what other things need to be done to find that one. She's searching, she's looking for that one. You know, the illustration is that Jesus is searching for that one sinner. And he says in verse number 10, Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And then he tells the the parable of the prodigal son who 
takes in, in rebellion to his father, demands his inheritance, and goes off and wastes all of it, and he has nothing, only to finally come to a place in his life where he understands he needs his father, and he needs to return home, and he's just squandering his life, and he's wasted all of his substance. And what does he do? He turns towards home, and he goes home. And what does he find when he returns home as he comes home with his head hung low? What does he find? He finds that his father is what? Waiting for him, and watching for him, and looking for him. And it's a picture of what God did for you and for me. The shepherd who went out looking for the one lost sheep. The woman who stopped doing all the other things that needed to be done in her home to find the one lost coin. The father who just wouldn't stop looking and waiting for his son. To come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember this morning, remember who you used to be. As Ephesians tells us, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Aliens from God by wicked works destined for hell for all of eternity. Remember who you used to be. Remember as you partake this morning, you remember how Jesus Christ died on that cross and he became your sin and my sin, all of our sin he took upon his body so that we might have life in him. Remember that God is a friend for sinners. God is the lover of your soul and you ought to personalize that this morning as you partake of these elements. Remember what a sinner you used to be. Remember the holy God of heaven and earth sought you out and found you and saved your soul. He loved you and he is the best friend that you have. He is a friend for sinners. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. You better accept this, is what he was saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief. I'm the biggest one of the bunch. God loved me. God loves me. A sinner. And the New Testament tells us that we're made saints. But he loves sinners. Now, look with me, if you would, to John chapter 8. And again, we're not going to take much time here at all. I've driven home this point, and you've seen it very clearly, that Jesus, what a friend for sinners. He came to heal and to save the brokenhearted, those who had no one else to love them. And it's wonderfully obvious, this truth of Jesus is a friend for sinners. It's wonderfully obvious in chapter 8 of John. Look at verse number 2. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Do not miss, there is a large group of people around him. You need to understand this. You've got to be able to picture it. Verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they dragged her in. They say unto him, Master, and I can just imagine the scorn in their faces, Teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. We caught this woman in the very act of adultery. 
I'll stop right there for just a moment, because scribes and Pharisees were always attempting to discredit Jesus, and that's what they were trying to do here. They were trying to discredit Jesus in, the front, in front of the people. Remember, uh, to some degree, he had popularity. He had lost some of it, no doubt, but still, people were coming to him. They weren't coming to them. They weren't sitting down at their feet, but they were coming to him. They were sitting down at his feet. And they were always trying, these religious men were always trying to trap Jesus in his words. They really, at this point in this passage, had developed the ultimate trap. They actually go so far to try to catch a woman committing the act of adultery. And I wouldn't be surprised if they actually orchestrated it. That is, sent a man in unto this woman. It wouldn't surprise me at all. They didn't care about this woman. And by the way, I have a question. Where was the man? Because if they caught her, they had to catch him too. But where's the man? There is no man. They're not going to uh, go so far as to offend a man, but they'll offend a woman. And the man would have been at least an equal party. And again, I think it's very real... Uh, something that ought to be considered, they actually set this woman up. And they're acting offended and furious because this woman has committed adultery against God and that this woman has broken the law of Moses. And they're acting so indignant and self-righteous. But this woman had broken the law. She had committed the act of adultery. It was very serious. The law of God was very clear about this in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. This woman and Jesus would have been under this law. And listen as I read it. Leviticus 20 and verse 10 says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That was the law that God had given for his people in those days. Now, these religious men weren't keeping the law. They weren't keeping all of it. And by the way, again, I tell you, the man wasn't there. They had caught him too. They were just interested in keeping part of the law, the part that they wanted to keep. And so these religious men, these Pharisees and scribes, have this double standard, you see. And they didn't mind abusing a woman, but they wouldn't touch the man. Really, they're just trying to trap Jesus. That's all they're after. But nonetheless, the law said that she should die. Look at verse number 5. Now Moses, they go on, they say, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Now all the people revered Moses. They revered his law. And the law wasn't just the law of Moses. It was the law that God had given through Moses to God's people. It was God's law for his people. So what they're really saying to Jesus is, God gave this law. Are you going to be in disagreement with God? That's what they're really trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to say, no, she shouldn't be stoned, or yes, she should be stoned. That's what they're trying to do. Now, what was he doing? He had gone, gotten up early, gone into the temple. He's teaching people, right? He's compassionately, lovingly, mercifully teaching people. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. And here come these, in, these arrogant Pharisees and scribes. And I want to tell you something. These men were adulterers themselves. 
In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus had said, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if they really, if they really believed the law of Moses, they would have executed each other. But they're not interested in justice, you see. They're not interested in the truth. They're just interested in trapping Jesus. And I believe that they had rocks ready. I think they were ready to kill this woman on the spot. Now, there's a dilemma in all of this. And what's the dilemma? Well, the dilemma is this. The people respected the law of Moses, and the people held up the law of God, and so had Jesus. In fact, uh, Jesus had said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So if Jesus says, well, don't stone her, then they're going to say, "Uh, he's not of God because he's in disagreement with God. He's in disagreement with the law of God that God gave through Moses. But on the other hand, if he says, well, stone her, justice should be carried out. She has broken the law. She's committed the act of adultery. Go ahead and stone her. Then they're going to say to him, well, how come you didn't stone all the rest of those sinners that you've been eating with and talking to? For the last three years, you see, as I've read to you already this morning, they're, they're continually disgusted that this man receiveth sinners, that this man talks with sinners. Such arrogance. How come you pick your sinners to stone and how come you present yourself as compassionate to the diseased when you're going to stone this woman? You see, they're trying to trap him. So how can God harmonize his justice with his mercy? That's the question. If God is a God of righteousness and a God of justice and a God of judgment by his holy nature, she needed to die. Now, I have a question for you. Did this woman deserve to die according to the law of God? Yes or no? I can't hear you. Yes. She deserved to die. Another question for you, is God, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, one one God, three persons, is God just? And is he holy? Yes, he is. This woman had offended him, hadn't she? She deserved to die. Now, did these men have any jurisdiction? No. They were the epitome of hypocrites. They were legalists. And that is a good, this is a good description of a legalist. I, I hold myself to a different standard than I hold you. And they were a legalist. They were holding her to a standard, and they were willing to take her life while they themselves were living in adultery. You see. But if God is a God of love, He's a God of justice, true, but if God is a God of love and he's a God of grace and he's a God of kindness and mercy and forgiveness, she should live. And so I've asked you if God is a God of of justice and righteousness and holiness, and you've told me yes, but is is he a God of love and mercy and kindness and graciousness and long-suffering? The answer is yes. Isaiah 45 and verse 21 says that God is a just God. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2 says, God says this, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And yet in Micah, the Bible says that God forgives our transgressions. How can God be a God of justice and forgive sins? 
How can he be a God of love and yet punish sin? And do you know what the answer is to that? Human wisdom has no answer for that. Notice how Jesus responds in verse number 6. This they said, tempting him, for just trying to trap him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. What did he write? Do you know what he wrote? None of us do. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. In fact, I'm not sure he wrote anything at all. Maybe he just ran his finger over the ground. I don't know if it was dirt or sand or maybe it could have been stone of some kind if it were there in the temple as it's written here. Probably just some stone. Maybe he wrote a word. I don't know exactly what Jesus wrote. But he, the rocks of the men are poised. They're trying to bait him and catch him trying to smear his reputation, and they'll kill a woman to do it. Look at verse 7. So when they continued asking, and they're badgering him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You know, they knew each other. They knew each other well. And look what they do in verse number 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, I have a question for you. If you, were, if you had been there that day and, and you had been convicted by your conscience with Jesus there, what would you have done? Jesus is a friend for sinners. When you and I are convicted of our sinfulness... Who else? Where else can we go? What did these men do? They were convicted in their own hearts. And what did they do? They, they, they ran away. They walked away. What would you have done if you had been there that day and you had been convicted in your heart about sinfulness? What would I have done that day? And I think most of us in this room, would, we, would have, we would have gone to him. Yes, I am a sinner. Would you forgive me of my sin? You're the only one who can forgive me of my sin. You can take it away, past, present, and future, but not these self-righteous Pharisees. Boy, they always struggled with this. They never would agree with him about their sinfulness. They wanted him to agree with them about their righteousness. And that wasn't the case. They were wrong. They were sinners. He was right. They were sinners. They were so self-righteous. But guess who stayed? Jesus is left there alone as they wander out one at a time, away from their salvation, away from God. But guess who stayed? This woman stayed. i got to tell you, that's shocking to me. Now, I, I, we, I emphasize to you in verse number 2, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and there's a multitude of people around him. This woman did not come to him voluntarily. She was dragged in by self-righteous men who wanted to kill her, who had trapped her and entrapped her in the act of adultery. The man is not there. They dragged her in. She has no voice as a woman. She's just standing there, probably being held in place by them. And they're ready to kill her as they levy the charges in front of not just Jesus, but in front of all of the people around her. 
She's being humiliated at the highest level. If anybody was going to leave, it would have been her. But she doesn't. They leave. She doesn't. She stays. She stayed. She was convicted of sin. She had sinned. Somebody needed to die. And I believe this with all my heart. She calls him Lord. And you see it there in verse number 9. It's astounding to me. She reacts to Christ. She's convicted of her sin. And she literally calls him supreme authority. She calls him Lord. Curious. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And they hadn't. They had left. The accusers had left. There was no condemnation coming from from these men. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. How can a holy God, and this is my question, how can a holy God let this woman go? Had she sinned? Yes or no? Did she deserve to die? Yes or no? How could Jesus, who is God in human flesh, how could he let her go? How could he let her off the hook? She had sinned. Somebody had to die. And I believe this with all my heart when Jesus said to that woman, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I believe when he looked at that woman in the eyes, I believe he knew full well that within six months, he would be dying her death. That's how she could go. That's how she could live. That's how he could forgive her because he was going to die for her adultery. He was going to make her righteous. And the only reason he could give her forgiveness because he was going to bear in his own body her sin of adultery. This woman's sin was going to be punished. Jesus was going to die for her adultery. And that is being a friend for sinners. Jesus Christ was willing to die for our adultery. Jesus Christ was willing to die for our lies. He was willing to die for our wicked mouths and our curses against his own name and our foul thoughts and our wicked deeds and our evil words that have come out of our mouths that never came out of his mouth. He was willing to die for every sin that we've ever committed And he was willing to die for every sin that we will ever commit. And he says to that woman, Woman, I don't condemn you either. Why? Because your sin is paid for. You're not condemned. Because I am going to pay for your sin. I am going to take your place. And then he says, Go and don't sin again. And this morning, as we're reminded that Jesus is a friend for sinners, a friend for a sinner, Make it personal, a friend for me, a friend for you. And as you ask for forgiveness this morning of sins that maybe you've fallen into or throng thoughts that you've begun to, to, to consider or maybe wrong paths or uh, ways of life that you begin to indulge in, as you ask God to forgive you of that sin that you've already been forgiven for, make a plan this morning as you leave this place that you're going to leave this place without any intent to sin There have been times in my life where the Spirit of God has convicted me of sin, and I've even gone through the motions at times, especially as a young man. I can remember 
asking God to forgive me, but not believing that I actually could have victory over the sin, and almost, in a sense, planning to fall into sin again. Don't make any plans. Go and don't sin again, is what he says. Isn't that what he says to you and me? In Christ, your sin is paid for. In Christ, your sin has been taken away. He doesn't condemn us anymore. So go and don't keep sinning. And Jesus, as he looked at this woman, knew he'd bear her sin on the cross. Jesus came for the hurting. He came for the poor. He came for the brokenhearted. He came for sinners. Jesus, what a friend. What a friend for sinners. Are you grateful? I hope you're grateful for this morning, this morning for what he's done in your life, what he's doing in your life. Are you grateful? There should be a part of us this morning that just is moved to love him. Because he's loved us. He loved us while we were sinners. I want you to take your hymnals. I want you to turn to hymn number 241. Hymn number 241. We're going to sing this hymn together. And deacons, if you'd come on the last verse as we sing it.